and welcome to Legacy Week, our second edition of Legacy Week. We do Legacy Week every month where we cover one film in its entirety, in several parts, paying homage to some of the great films that we love, adore, admire, etc., etc. Now this month is very special to me because it is my favorite movie of all time. It's 1987's The Lost Boys, directed by Joel Schumacher. Amazing cast, amazing story, covers multiple genres, mixes everything from every genre that you could ever imagine or want in your movie. Comedy, horror, action, everything. Gets everything in there. We are just about dead nuts, a little past dead nuts, I guess. In the 80s, we're in 1987, so 80s culture that we know now, that we refer to as, you know, things as very 80s. This movie is very 80s. That may be why it holds such a dear place in my heart, but there are several reasons why. And you're going to hear it over the course of the next three episodes that air this week. And this is part one. I will be covering the origins of The Lost Boys. How it came about. How it got started. Who wrote it? Who wrote the screenplay? The cast? Everything. Leading up to the film. Then, in episode two, we will have Eric Scott Tyler... Sean Henderson and Brian C. Tyler are familiar voices that you hear on this episode. These episodes uh, every so often, uh, they are the most occurred guests, I guess you could say, slash co-hosts that have helped me keep this podcast afloat for as long as it's been around. And we are going to dive into the entire film on episode two, and we are going to talk about the soundtrack. And there are going to be factoids throughout that episode, throughout episode two. Now, episode three will be more testimonials when we'll have guests on that talk about the first time they saw The Lost Boys, what connection they have with the film. You know, when did they first find out about it? Did they did they discover it on VHS? Did they discover it on TV? Did they discover it on DVD? Did they discover it on Blu-ray? Now, I hope that most people listening discovered this well before DVDs came out, uh, well, well before uh, Blu-rays came out, but some people, obviously, horror fans are of every demographic. So there are people who were probably born in maybe the early to mid, or the mid-90s, I should say, or the late 90s, that didn't discover this until they found, you know, a DVD in mom and dad's dvd rack because they are such a their, their parents were such a fan of this film i discovered this you're gonna find out how i discovered this but i discovered this on television and not regular television my parents as i've said multiple times were big uh, proponents of having the most exclusive e- elite package in, in television you could get so i grew up thankfully we i didn't have a, a whole lot growing up but i had the stuff that was essential to have for someone who became such a, a freak, twisted horror movie and movie fan, period. Uh, I luckily grew up with HBO, Cinemax, Showtime. So I was seeing movies that most kids my age weren't seeing. Uh, not that people didn't have, not that many homes didn't have the all the premiere packages, but my parents were paying a pretty penny for television. Um, 
which was funny because, you know, sometimes I feel like they wouldn't dish the money out for certain things, but we had every premiere package for television you could possibly want ever. Uh, it was actually kind of strange to see, you know, friends of mine that clearly had a better uh, financial upbringing uh, than mine, uh, <laughs> but didn't have HBO or didn't have Showtime or Cinemax. Uh, but we did, thankfully. And uh, I discovered this film, and I'll talk more about this in our testimonial episodes. Uh, I discovered this film on, I would assume, Showtime or Cinemax or HBO. I think those were the two channels that played it the most. It was a War- It's a Warner Brothers film. And when I found it, you know, it was immediately recorded on a VHS tape off a VHS recorder, a VCR. Uh, and it changed my life forever. I remember distinctly the little labels when you'd buy a VHS tape, when you'd put the label on the, the spine, I guess you call it, of the VHS, or the little square on top of it between the two reels. Uh, I remember the label completely because it was the one of the few VHSs we didn't have multiple things on because you could fit like a movie and a half or, or two shorter uh, movies on a VHS tape but I remember the Lost Boys distinctly because there was only one movie on that tape because it needed its own tape I don't know if that was uh, intended but we never we would never try to even risk accidentally cutting off any part of the Lost Boys the Lost Boys recorded VHS uh, tape was sacred and I wish I still had that one I have the I I have a, a reproduction from 1991 uh, that I picked up I think in the mid 90s at like a nice and easy on the other side of a night of lake in like Constantia or Cleveland New York something like that uh, picked it up because the VHS the recorded VHS tape was so tattered and weathered and you know there was tracking issues so I had to get a new one so I got that one in the mid 90s and at a convenience store and uh and then obviously went on to the DVD and the Blu-ray I own all those uh because I need multiple copies of this film I I love this film so much as I said before this is my favorite film of all time and we're going to get into why that is but the production of this film and the pre-production and how this film came about is very interesting and it's very fun as the movie is it's a very fun whimsical horror movie that is very comedic that is very i feel like even though it was pushed into this sexy teen movie it still connected with kids who were younger like myself finding this movie i don't it was obviously filmed a year before I was born, uh, less than a year actually, uh, about eight months before I was born, uh, or came out about eight months before I was born, and so I, I never had a, a moment of my life without this film. This film has existed in my orbit of my breathing mortal coil forever. It has you know, been, it was one of the first movies I remember loving is the first movie that I remember being obsessed with is the first movie I remember countlessly watching multiple times. The, one of the other ones is, uh, Goonies, uh, ironically enough, uh, two Dick Donner projects, Dick Donner, obviously a producer and director on Goonies two years prior in 1985, which we covered on legacy week last month. But, uh, Dick Donner originally 
wanted to direct this. This was a Dick Donner baby. And unfortunately, there was so many tie-ups and it just kind of got pushed to the back burner too many times. And Dick Donner had been on record as saying, you know, if I spend too long on a project, I've made the movie so many times in my head that I lose interest in it. And not that he completely lost interest in the idea or the what the Lost Boys could be. He just knew that he needed to bring someone else on that was going to have the energy levels be up because he spent so much time not working on the project that all of his, I think, energy on the movie and the idea of the movie itself, like he said, he had made it so many times in his head, he needed to bring in someone fresh. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, and I can't find, I'm sure somewhere in the recesses of... Uh, of the internet, I could find something, but I, I, I did find rumblings that Mary Lambert, who was a huge, huge music video director, uh, she directed Madonna Material Girl, uh, Madonna Like a Virgin, so she was coming off directing the biggest pop star in the world at the time, aside from Michael Jackson, and she was a movie, or a music video director, and her name, she was attached to this for a small period of time, but then Joel Schumacher got involved because he had just came off the success, the 1986 successful film, St. Elmo's Fire. Now, St. Elmo's Fire was a little bit, it wasn't like a Hughes-esque movie per se. They were, the characters were a little older and the issues that they, that they were dealing with were a little more adult. Drug addiction, you know, love triangles, things like that, uh abusive relationships so they were a little that that content was a little more mature than a Hughes film but it was still kind of in there because we had brat packers in there you know I don't Demi Moore obviously wasn't uh, necessarily a brat packer but obviously Judd Nelson Andrew McCarthy uh you know and, and same with guy people who weren't necessarily part of the brat pack but were making were cutting their teeth Demi Moore Rob Lowe uh Ali Sheedy obviously a member of the brat pack uh, so all these actresses and actors, uh, Emilio Estevez, obviously, a Brat Packer as well, uh, these kids were, you know, cutting their teeth, and, and it was a teen movie, but it was an older teen movie slash early 20s, I think they are, because they're post-high school, in college, grad school, kind of, uh, and that was another sleek, sexy film, and that's something you hear said about the Lost Boys a lot was sleek and sexy, and Joel Schumacher, uh, coming off the success of that, was immediately, you know, sought out by Dick Donner's wife as a, as the director, she said, listen, this guy is coming off this big movie, he has style, I think he's going to be perfect for this, and turns out, he 100% was, so, now Joel Schumacher on board, so Joel Schumacher then is tasked with putting this film together because a lot of the times, honestly, producers do all the putting together of the film. They Frankenstein the film. They, they put together everything and all the people that they hire help put together everything. But the director has an important role as almost giving the okay on everything. Obviously, the director can be overruled by producers, but... I think Dick Donner trusted once he he and his wife 
had kind of met Joel and they talked to him enough, they understood that Joel had style, that Joel had a distinct style that was going to transpose into what the Lost Boys was going to be. Now, originally, the Lost Boys was more set to be a children's vampire movie. It was going to be like a Goonies, you know, with fangs is what that movie was going to be. It was going to be the, the you know, I, I would imagine 12, 13, 14-year-old kids as, you know, f- discovering that there's vampires and fighting them. Uh, at least that's what the original script that was written was... Uh, was going to entail. It was going to be directed towards a, a younger audience. Now, part of the casting that was going on, so the casting director, Marion Doherty, found uh, a lot of great faces. And she was already working in the Warner Brothers system. She was d- working directly with Dick Donner. She obviously worked on... Uh, a lot of Dick Donner films. She worked on the Lethal Weapon films. Uh, but she was a very interesting person because she she had a knack for just finding talent. To just give you a brief little rundown of what Marion Doherty's credits are as a casting director. So you could kind of write it for yourself as to where her talent truly is. Now, we won't even touch upon her earlier days as a casting director. We'll simply touch on her early, earlier work, or her later works, rather, just to kind of give you a little sense. So, National Lampoon's European Vacation, 1986's Wildcats, Lethal Weapon, and then Lost Boys. And then she obviously went on uh, to do things like Funny Farm. She cast 1989 Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, uh, Gremlins 2, If Looks Can Kill with uh, R- Richard Grieco. Uh, the Last Boy Scout. You know, Batman Returns, Forever Young with Mill Gibson. Another, another Joel film, obviously, falling down. So she was obviously a huge influencer, and she could find talent. She could find young talent. I mean, she did A Man With Two Brains, I think, as well, um, which I think came out in the early 80s or something like that, 83 maybe? Uh, Regardless, so Marion Doherty really had her finger on the pulse as someone who was, you know, she was in her 60s, I think. She was in her, like, late 50s, early 60s when she's when she's a casting director in the 80s. So she knew talent, and she had been working for years and years and years and years, decades. And uh, she found a lot of these young faces. Now, to be able to find younger actors and actresses in, say, The Goonies might have been a little easier just because they had to play kids. You know, they had to play their age. And they it's easier to omit, uh, I think, kids being kids at that younger age because they're still untouched by Hollywood. They're still unfazed by the Hollywood system. So they're not necessarily held under weird circumstances where they've been affected by what Hollywood is. There's a lot of negatives in Hollywood. We're not going to get too much into that. We're going to try to keep this as as fun and as positive as possible because that's what this movie is. It's fun and it's positive. 
So Joel Schumacher is on board. Now, Joel has a, a very huge mountain to climb as far as finding people. Now, he had just found and he re, uh, had uh, Jason Patrick come in and read based off his work a year prior on the movie Solar Babies. Now, Michael or Jason Patrick had, who played Michael, had no desire whatsoever to do a teenage vampire film or even a kid. I mean, at the time, it was a kid vampire film. Now, I think Joel was already pushing for the movie to be a little more mature, a little more sexy with older kids, you know, teenagers, 16, 17, 18 year olds. And so at that point, they, you know, I think once Jason, he knew he wanted Jason Patrick. Joel has been on record of saying, you know, at that moment in time, a person at that age, 17, 18 years old, had the looks and the talent of Jason Patrick. And you can see that in the film. Uh, he is very, uh, obviously, he was a great looking kid, still is a great looking guy. Regardless, uh, Joel needed him. And it took meeting you know, a few times a week for a few weeks for him to be on board. And I think one of the caveats was that, that the script has got to be, you know, the script has to be uh, older and more mature. And, you know, down, down rolls the snowball effect. Once that, they get Jason Patrick on, Jason Patrick worked with Jamie Gertz in Solar Babies. So what's he do? Because originally the role of star, played by Jamie Gertz, she was going to be like a short blonde, short-haired blonde, pixie-type beach girl. And that changed immediately when Jason Patrick suggested Jamie Gertz as star. So Jamie Gertz comes in. They love her. She's on board. And the, the ball starts rolling tremendously after that. Now, this cast is very, 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 very interesting. We have Alex Winter as Lost Boy Marco. He had just graduated from film school, so he was trying to cut his teeth. And you got to remember, this is right before Bill and Ted, too. So Alex Winter, unknown. Billy Worth was a model in New York, played Lost Boy Dwayne, uh, another great-looking kid. Uh, Marion Doherty and Joel working very tightly together, and they're finding these great, these great, good-looking young guys that pulled these roles off. You know, Alex Winter, unknown. Billy Worth, unknown. Brooke McCarter, who was actually, uh, I believe he was a personal assistant slash talent, like, kind of manager for uh, Corey Haim and, and worked with, uh, later on went to, you know, be very close with both Corey Haim and uh, Corey Feldman. Brooke McCarter is Lost Boy Paul. Uh, comes in and he I believe Brooke McCarter had a credit before a couple credits before this I believe he was in thrashing if I'm not thrashing I n uh, I could be wrong about that let me uh, double check yeah he was in thrashing as Brooke McCarter Jr. and he was in an episode of the Twilight Zone before this other than that he had no real extensive again you got Brooke McCarter Billy Worth and Alex Winter rounding out your Lost Boys as Lost Boy Paul Lost Boy Dwayne and Lost Boy Marco those are three good looking teenage kids uh that did a great job and I think you know Brooke we're gonna talk about uh all these actors uh 
once we start diving in, once we dive into the film on the second episode, we're going to be able to break down each character and and what you know we all think of each character and how they were portrayed and things like that. So you're going to get a lot of factoids and a lot of personal opinions and a lot of cast talk uh, in episode two as well as as well as us breaking down the entire film and then gushing about the soundtrack, of course. And Jameson Newlander comes in and is as comes in as the role of Alan Frog, uh, not before. Of course, uh, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman are cast. This is the movie that started the two Corys, that started their career together. Now, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman were both going for roles throughout their earlier career pre-Lost Boys, were both going for roles for the same thing. And I don't think they ever formally met, but they were reading on different days for each other's roles. And, you know, I, I think I think Feldman read for, for Lucas, and then, uh, you know, Haim ended up getting Lucas, and I think Haim read for Mouth in Goonies, and then, you know, Corey Feldman obviously got the role of Mouth. So there was, they had knew about each other. And I think Alyssa Milano, who was dating Corey Feldman th- at the time, had said, you know, men had talked about, oh, uh, you know, how oh, this new kid, Corey Haim, wow, blah, 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 blah. So there was a little jealousy factor between Haim and Feldman before they had met each other. So when Haim and Feldman got cast, uh, Corey Haim, of course, being the uh, the sweet soul that he was, calls up Feldman, leaves like a message on his answering machine. It was just like, hey, man, like... We're going to be working together, really pumped to be working with you, blah, 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 blah. And they end up meeting at the beach, at Venice Beach, Muscle Beach, and uh, in Southern California, if you're unaware. Uh, and they end up meeting there with their fathers, and they end up hitting it off, throwing, just throwing a football around, talking on the beach, just being kids. And their friendship is born out of, you know, being in the Lost Boys, being 16 years old on the set of the Lost Boys. And I actually think that, I'm not sure about Feldman, but I know Corey Haim got his license on the set of, uh, like right during the beginning, the pre-production or production, he had just gotten his license uh, on this, on this film. So, you know, they are becoming older they're becoming more mature as they're now 15, 16 years old. And, uh, you know, this started the two Corys, man. You know, License to Drive, National Lampoon's Last Resort, Dream a Little Dream, Dream a Little Dream 2, Busted, like all those movies. This start, License to Drive, of course, uh, this started it all, was The Lost Boys. And you could see that this film, I think, I mean, with Corey Feldman, you could say that the Goonies is vastly important as well and is almost in some regards just as important. But as far as the two Corys and as far as catapulting them into, you know, being mentioned in the same breath together, too, for the rest of their careers, the Lost Boys is, is it. And I think it is the most fun that we've seen the two Corys in and I love all the other films. I love dream a little dream. I love license to drive. I love the national lampoon's last resort, but this is the movie where they are at their most pure. You know, we got, this is the debut record that just slid. This is the appetite for destruction of Corey movies. Not that use your illusion 
the Use Your Illusion albums were bad. I love them. And I love Chinese Democracy, if we're talking... If we're going to talk uh, Guns N' Roses. But I digress. So, uh, so we have the... We have the two Corys. They're on board. On comes Jameson Newlander. Comes in just a, a little nothing happening, trying to be an actor kid, and gets the role as Alan Frog. And and there we have it. We have, you know, most of our Lost Boys and uh, Kiefer Sutherland comes on as David. Now, Kiefer was seen by Joel at the end of a Sean Penn flick called That Close Range. Also has Christopher Walken in it. All-star cast, amazing cast, amazing film. And Kiefer, uh, there's a close-up shot at the end where Kiefer has like kind of like shoulder-length uh, black hair, and he kind of stood out to Joel. And and he had just, uh, Kiefer had come off Stand By Me, I think. He had come out, I think, before, or at least was filmed in 85. It came out in 86, and then I believe Kiefer did at close range after um, Stand By Me, but Joel had seen him in at close range and immediately wanted him, and there we go, boom, meets Kiefer, Kiefer and him headed off, and then we have our Lost Boys, we have our Frog Brothers, we have Jamie Gertz, we have Jason Patrick as Michael, and and then the rest of the cast falls into place. And we're talking, you know, Diane Wiest is someone who had just won an Academy Award. Joel Schumacher did not think he was going to be able to get her because she was such a revered and respected Hollywood actress. She just wasn't going to be in a comedy teenage vampire flick. But the offer was extended and she took it uh, to Joel Schumacher's surprise. She took it and... We're off to the races. We got legit. We got a legit name. We got legit kid stars in the two Corys. And we got up and coming, young, good looking Billy Worth, Alex Winter, Jason Patrick, Jamie Gertz. We got Kiefer, who's making a name for himself and carving that out. Uh, and then we get, you know, Edward Herman as, uh, as Max, the store owner. Uh, not your stereotypical, you know, Jerry Dandridge-esque sexy uh, role as the lead ended up being, you know, revealed as the lead vampire, the father of this Lost Boys clan. Uh, but it worked, you know, getting that like tall, odd looking, looks like he was like maybe like the financial advisor or was like the tour manager for the cars. Uh, just an odd looking guy but had like you know a mysterious sexiness geekiness nerdiness to him that i think was perfectly married with diane weiss character as lucy as lucy i don't know if her name was still emerson at the time uh because they're moving there obviously they're the emersons are, have left phoenix arizona and come to santa carla california to live with her father uh who is played by bernard hughes as grandpa so, uh, you know, Lucy and her two boys move to uh, Santa Carla, the murder capital of the world. What a cast. What a cast this is. It is just... It's a small cast, too. You don't lose... People don't get lost in this movie. I mean, not, not you know, pardon the, uh, pardon the pun. Uh, you know, we have, the, we have the four Lost Boys. We have Star... Who is like their half, their 
they're half vampire, half human, you know, uh, succubus in the making. Uh, we have uh, Chance Michael Corbett, of course, who plays uh, Laddie. Plays we obviously know that he isn't really probably a relation to Star. He's just a missing kid that has been turned into a half vampire, and now he's like Star's son slash little brother. And uh, so you get those those like tertiary characters, those third tier characters. But they don't get lost, you know. And uh, you know, we have Max, we have Lucy, we have Michael and Sam, who are obviously brothers, Michael and Sam Emerson. And we have the Frog Brothers. There's like, this is such a family movie too, and we see how tight knit the Emersons and the Frog Brothers have to get because they don't have any other choice. Because who else is going to believe them? But what a what a fun story this ended up turning into, and it would have been interesting to see what it would have been like had it been a Goonies with Fangs. But I think because it turned out the way it did, it is so revered and so remembered because of because it you know matured and it became sleek and sexy. And and I remember even at a, a younger age, being you know getting becoming eleven, twelve. Uh, seeing this movie time and time and time and time and time and time again, my father, uh, who's a huge fan of this movie too, that shows you the range. My father loved action movies and he loved comedies and he liked horror, but he was really a Western guy. He was raised, you know, in Oklahoma in his earlier years and he was a huge John Wayne fan. Uh, he just loved Westerns. But he loved, like, the 80s action films and things like that. But a movie like this that you would think wouldn't have appealed to someone kind of as rough and tumble as him, he loved this film. I can't tell you how many times, you know, it would be the middle of the day on a summer day growing up, and you'd hear him say, you know, holler, But Lost Boys is on TV! Calm down. We'd all have to sit there and watch it. Have to watch it because it was that good. It demanded you stop what you're doing and you watch it immediately. Even though we have it recorded and we probably watched it two weeks ago and it doesn't matter because we could put it on literally at any point. It's on. Stop what you're doing and watch it. And that's the the strength of this film. And like I said, we're going to get into the ups and the downs and the soundtrack. Who Joel Schumacher made it a point to really tack down a lot, a lot of these musical artists. You know, we got In Excess and Jimmy Barnes, both Australian uh, musicians, band. Uh, Lou Graham wrote Lost in the Shadows, amazing. Robert Daltrey of The Who comes on, does an Elton John cover, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Echo and the Bunnymen covers the doors, People Are Strange, a man. Uh, 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 amazing. Uh, Gerard McMahon, G. Tom Mack coming out right in the title track, just reading the script with Cry Little Sister. Amazing. Legendary song. In film, out of film, in cinema, out of cinema, whatever you want to say. You know, and then we got Tim Capella, who was, uh, the touring saxophonist and pianist for Tina Turner at the time, comes out. I still believe just, I mean, amazing, amazing soundtrack, you know, Eddie and the Tide doing power play beauty has her way by, you know, mummy calls and the shock of missile weaves by Thomas Newman. I mean, 
laying down the law again uh, by Access and Jimmy Barnes uh, doing the collab uh, as well as the Good Time song. Um, just a just a powerhouse of a soundtrack, and we're gonna we're gonna dive into that too. I mean, there's we're we're gonna dive deep into that. So you know the the story was written by Jan Fisher and James uh, Jermaeus. Now that was the more loss or the Goonies with Fangs type film. Now Jeffrey Bohm comes in and refines it and turns it into this sleek, sexy thing that I think even if it didn't omit that in the script that Jeffrey Bohm wrote, Joel and his you know his set decorators, his wardrobists, all the people involved in this film are what makes this film. 100% amazing. And, you know, we have an all-star, a legit all-star director of photography. We have cinematographer Michael Chapman on this. Now, Michael Chapman, I don't know if you're familiar, anybody here is listening to this right now is familiar with him, but let me give you a rundown. We'll just say this. He has worked on some of the most memorable films of all time. He was a Scorsese guy, so he wrote. He worked on Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is probably one of the most entertaining films of all time. One of the best shot films of all time. So you can take that. Raging Bull, another Scorsese flick. Another, the it's revered for its cinematography. It is legit revered for what it did. the The way it was shot. And he was in the camera and electrical department. He was a camera operator on Jaws, on The Godfather. I mean, you're talking about some of the biggest movies, period, in cinema. In cinema, period, nothing else. You know, and he goes on, he does The Lost Boys, but he goes on to do, you know, Bill Murray flicks with Scrooge and Ghostbusters 2, Kindergarten Cop, Rising Sun. He did fucking Space Jam. I mean, evolution, uh, and, and he, you know, he has worked, he's directed movies. He, he directed, uh, all the right moves in 1983. One of my favorite Tom Cruise films, uh, shoot to, he even was an, an actor. I didn't even know he was an actor. He, he has acted in a, a bunch of films as well. They're smaller roles, but what a, this movie is shot beautifully. It looks beautiful. It holds up. It's timeless. Now, cameras really took like uh, a step and a leap ahead in 85, 86. Because if you watch certain films from 1986, you can see that they're using those kind of like older, albeit nice cameras. In 1986, we started seeing films that were looking a lot better, a lot crisper, a lot cleaner. If you look at the cameras that were used in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that movie looks super, super, super clean. That movie looks like it could have been filmed in 1999. And growing up as a kid, that that always blew my mind seeing how crisp and clear and how wide that film looks because it was shot wide. It looks beautiful, and it's 1986. Now, we got the same... We still have a, a an 80s look in The Lost Boys with those cameras, but it has that crisp timelessness that, say, a Ferris Bueller's Day Off has as well. And if you watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you can go see how beautiful 
beautiful that film looks and how beautiful this film looks as well. And this film incorporates like that sleekness in the way it was shot. It's just it's just a beautifully shot film. And that is 100% due to everyone who worked on it, but specifically our cinematographer, our, our DOP, uh, uh, Michael Chapman. Just a tremendous, tremendous work. And we already talked about Marion Doherty, obviously. Uh, Bo Welsh, who was a production designer, he needs a lot of credit on this too because the way everything looked, the cave, Grandpa's house, amazing this is amazing these are amazing sets you know obviously we are on uh the warner's lot for say um i think grandpa's house was the warner's lot i think part of that was filmed inside and then some of it for the bigger for the the fight scene with michael and stuff where michael and david are flying around and fighting on top that was filmed in a lot but i do think some of the uh um scenes were actually filmed in the house as well obviously all the cave stuff is the warner lot uh and but we have the boardwalk and and santa cruz obviously it was going to be initially going to be santa cruz santa cruz did not like them placing the moniker of murder capital of the world on the city of santa cruz so they make a fictional town up santa carla uh and just the look of everything. So the you know the the set decorator uh, Chris Westland, uh, unfortunately uh, passed away before the film was released. Uh, and he, like I said, he was a uh, he was a set decorator. And we got to thank our costume designer Susan Becker. Just amazing wardrobe in this film. Amazing wardrobe. And there's just so many. And the the effects. You know, Greg Cannon's uh, Canum's the effects crew. Uh, you know, he helped guys really hone their craft. Tony Gardner, who was on the effects crew at Canem, uh, has went on to do, uh, probably some of the most revered effects. And I feel like he obviously isn't mentioned with the K and B's of the world and things like that, but he has done so much in the horror realm that I think people don't realize all that he's done, which is, uh, slightly shocking, but he's worked on, uh, the, the creature effects in Cocoon. He's worked on Three Amigos, Evil Dead 2. He obviously did The Lost Boys. Uh, Rockula, Dark Mad, Adam's Family, Army of Darkness, Tommy Knockers, Adam's Family Values. Uh, just, you know, Lord of Illusions. He, he went on to work on non-horror films. He went on to work on things like Happy Gilmore. And There's Something About Mary, Me, Myself, and Irene. You know, all these insane insane high budget successful huge movies is still working today bad grandpa jack the jackass movie i think he did something on or bad the bad grandpa movie uh just so many amazing amazing people in every part of this film that made it great you know and and with that said i really i really think that we need to pay homage to the people that are no longer with us. Obviously, there are a ton that have sadly passed. Um, and what I'm going to do right now is read off everybody and their job in this film. And these are people that have passed away, uh, some recently, some not so recently. Uh, but I want I felt I felt it necessary to to talk about 
to talk about this and to mention these names because without every single person that worked on that works on every film you know the film isn't what it, what it is without these people and this being my favorite film of all time i it went through and made sure i found every person that has passed away that worked on this film and uh i want to mention their names right now so if you'll please indulge me and uh listen to these names and, and their occupations on 1987's the lost boys and uh yeah uh what what better way uh um, you know we're a little horror movie music fun movie podcast genre of film podcast um so do people really you know care about these names no but they should because without these names the lost boys isn't what it is today so uh, you know here here we uh here we go it's you know these it's it's very sad that these people are no longer with us so the least we could do is acknowledge them by their name and occupation and uh why they made my favorite movie of all time uh so great everyone contributed to this so we have of course recently departed joel schumacher the director bernard hughes as grandpa edward herman as max brooke mccarter as lost boy paul Corey haim as sam emerson jan fisher the story writer, Jeffrey Bohm, who wrote the screenplay, Harvey Bernard, the producer, worked with Dick Donner on many films, Morton Greenspoon, the contact lens consultant in the effects department, John Voyage of the Canham effects crew, Jeff Bushelman, sound editor, Alan Nineberg, ADR editor, Alan Roney, production sound mixer, excuse me, David Roney, production sound mixer, Charles Campbell and Louis Edelman, Supervisor Sound Editors. Keith Shardle, Visual Effects Production Manager. Bernie, Bernie Pock, Stuntman. Kim Kosky, Stuntman. Bill Erickson, Stunt Coordinator. Charles Bowman, Stuntman. Mae Boss, Stuntwoman. Gene Kearney, Key Grip. Bob Munoz, Grip Best Boy. Peter Salim camera operator robert crosby boom man doug mathesis this was was an uncredited gaffer and anthony goldschmidt the title designer all those people who worked on this film be it behind the scenes or in front of the camera have sadly passed away and i want to remember those people by honoring this film and mentioning their names now the last name uh, was the last name that I found of all the people that have passed away that worked on this film, Anthony Goldschmidt, who created the title, uh, the you know the logo of the Lost Boys, which is every it's so simplistic but it's so memorable. And I've seen bands for years of multiple genres rip off this title, this this font, you know the the uppercase lowercase uppercase design with the red line separating the and the lost boys and the red dot in the middle it's so simplistic yet it's so memorable and i think it's you know it needs to be mentioned that you know when i see that you know i immediately remember just seeing the title i remember everything i love about this film and just seeing that on the vhs for years and on my cassette tape that i have and, you know, now on my Blu-ray and, you know, on, on everything that I have and the CD, everything that, uh, you know, that is the effect that every person that passed away and hasn't passed away, every person that worked on this film in any capacity 
has had a tremendous impact on anybody who is a fan of this film, uh, myself included, obviously, because it is my favorite film. So someone like Anthony Goldschmidt, who just created the title, you know, design, that Lost Boys title design, you know, he probably, you know, wasn't aware that his little contribution of the title menu is so impactful to someone like myself, who is, you know, almost 33 years old, has a podcast, uh, and talks about horror movies and genre movies with his friends, and talks about, you know, music and whatever we talk about on this podcast, how I don't think he understands how much of an impact something so small as creating the title, the title card, the title being the title designer on The Lost Boys is... Uh, impacted me it sounds uh it sounds a little uh, goofy to say but you know I, I look i'm look staring directly at this title card right now and it's uh you know the lost boys is what makes me me it sounds goofy but you know it's comedy it's horror you know it's it's everything it, it, it's so many different moving parts that create this really unique thing and the Lost Boys is such a huge part of my movie fandom, my music fandom, uh, style. You know, I'm still, I'm, I still think I'm trying to like. I, I wish I could pull off like some of the jacket that Marco wears, or like maybe the uh, the uh, the pants that uh, Billy Worth uh, as uh, <laughs> as a uh, as a vampire wears, and. Uh, Dwayne, of course. Uh, it's uh, like I said. It's just uh, I'm really excited to be talking about this film. Um, and this is a good like precursor. We kind of get a breakdown of of everything leading up to this film. You know, the casting. You know, uh, you know, Dick Donner obviously wanting to do it, wasting too much time. Goes on to do Lethal Weapon uh, around the same time period, so can't unfortunately do this. Um, and find end up finding Joel Schumacher, who sadly just passed away last month, but uh, or this past month. And uh, like I said, we're gonna have fun. This is gonna be awesome. I'm glad that we can honor the people that have passed. I'm glad that we can talk about everyone who is still alive that worked on this film and is still honoring this film to this day. I feel like the Lost Boys are just as big now as they've ever been. The film will not die, and that's what's great about films, genre films, any film. Uh, you know, the art lives forever. And we just lost John Saxon, too, 83 years old. Uh, lost him, and uh, it's a good run. Obviously, we hate to see someone like John Saxon go, but that art and those movies uh, and our memories uh, live on forever. And uh, we got to be thankful for that. And what an awesome time this is going to be. This has been episode one of The Lost Boys Legacy Week. Now, hopefully we answered uh, most, if not all, of your questions about, uh, you know, cast and, and who was filmed and, and uh, you know, I think, uh, so I, I was going to wait to bring up these points, but I will give you two little snippets uh, and we're going to talk about at the, on the episode two where we cover the entire film, uh, Ben Stiller auditioned as one of the Lost Boys. Which one? We have no idea. Jim Carrey was also unconfirmed, but rumored that he auditioned as well for a role in the film. So this is going to be... Uh, we got so much to go through. We got so much to cover. 
we have so much to talk about the makeup effects we have the you know the the stunts in the film the actual film the music we're covering that all on episode two and like i said in episode three will be more testimonials we'll talk to people on how they found the film uh where it ranks amongst some of their favorites and what their favorite characters are things like that really the the nitty-gritty fan shit that everyone wants to read about and uh I couldn't be more excited to be doing Legacy Week for the Lost Boys. And when Episode 3 airs, when we're doing those testimonials and fanning out, that will mark the 33rd birthday of the Lost Boys from when it came out on July 31st, 1987. It It will now be July 31st, 2020. And we'll be celebrating 33 years of the Lost Boys with that episode. And that's going to be so damn fun. And thank you for listening to this episode. Like I said, the next two episodes, we got plenty of guests. So you won't have to hear just me ramble on about, you know, uh, everything that has to do with this movie. We're going to have a lot of fun conversation. And I hope you join it. And we're on iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. We're, we're there, most likely. We're on Instagram at HeartGodMedia. We're on Twitter at HeartGodMedia. You can follow us there. And, uh, yeah, let's dive into Episode 2 and 3. This week, you've just heard Episode 1 of Legacy Week, The Lost Boys. And we'll see you in a few days on Episode 2. Legacy Week, The Lost Boys, cue that music. <laughs>